This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. If you need surgery or a loved one and your GP is a man, chances are he will refer you to a male surgeon. And that can have repercussions beyond the careers of fully qualified female surgeons because it can lead to delays in treatment while patients wait for their surgeon of choice. And actually, what I mean is further delays in treatment as we come out of the pandemic where treatment has often been delayed. Now, this is the finding of a new study published in the peer-reviewed journal JAMA Surgery. And uh, so I want to know if you had to wait for a particular surgeon. Was it a man? What do you think about all this? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to the co-author of the study and a researcher at St. Michael's Hospital, Dr. Faima Dosa. Dr. Dosa, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So uh, what made you embark on this study? Uh, so this was a follow-up to a study we did in 2019 where uh, we investigated the gender pay gap in surgery and showed that in Ontario, there's a 25% gap in the earnings of male and female physicians. Uh, and in that study, we showed that part of that gap is being driven by fewer opportunities for female surgeons to do the most lucrative surgical procedures. Um, In Ontario, to be able to see patients as a specialist, you do need to get a referral from a physician. And so we wondered whether the effect was coming from further upstream, whether, you know, the gender pay gap was actually being driven by uh, gender bias in how referrals were coming into surgeons in the province. And uh, you found that, yes, but let's let's talk about that from the perspective of the patient. So uh, how can that be harmful to a patient? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to consider is the, the metrics that we use to evaluate who is a good surgeon, quote-unquote good surgeon, um, are actually somewhat nebulous. You know, we like to think that we pick our specialists based on their ability, their skill, how good they are with patients, but we actually don't have any objective ways of measuring that. And so a lot of it comes from word of mouth. And there have been studies using data from Ontario that have shown that female surgeons have equal, if not better, outcomes than male surgeons. And so the objective data that we have would tell us that perhaps female surgeons should at least have equal referrals, if not more referrals than their male colleagues. Um, so if you as a patient are being preferentially sent to a male surgeon simply because he's a man, um, you, you may be disadvantaged in terms of outcomes, although that may not be the case. But the more important thing for us is the effect it can have on wait times. Obviously, wait times are a huge focus in our system. And our concern is if female surgeons are not receiving as many referrals, we're essentially underutilizing a segment of the surgical workforce. And you can imagine a scenario where, you know, women are just not getting the same number of referrals and that results in shorter wait times to see female surgeons. And yet patients are still being sent to the same male surgeon, still waiting long periods of time to be able to be seen and to get their surgery. Um, One of the surprising things in this is that that was true, that male surgeons get more referrals, even in obstetrics and gynecology. I mean, that surprised me. Yeah, I mean, one of the assumptions that's often made is that we see gender bias in various industries simply because they're male-dominated industries. And the solution is just encourage more women into the profession, and that'll naturally fix these problems that we're seeing. And our data would actually argue against that, that simply having more women in the specialty doesn't fix these problems, but actually just allows the problems to manifest more strongly. Um, You can imagine in certain professions where there are no women to refer to, even if uh, the referring physician does have gender biases that they carry, they won't be able to exhibit or manifest those biases. So you actually do need women in the profession to be able to see that these biases exist. 
I know. I mean, this is something that's come up before, and I know that it's part of what you looked at, that you can eliminate this and help wait times if you make a central list of available surgeons and people go to the first available. Now, I've, um, I have a little bit of experience on, on you know, patient committees, and generally speaking, it's the surgeons themselves who oppose this kind of thing. They, they like being, you know, the rock star surgeon with uh, their own list, waiting list. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's probably some truth in that. Uh, that being said, uh, this idea of centralized referrals has been studied in other provinces and in other jurisdictions, other countries. Uh, and what we know from systems where they've uh, put in centralized referrals is, one, patients are more satisfied. Uh, because they're being seen more efficiently, more quickly. Uh, The referring physicians are more satisfied because it takes this process of trying to figure out who to refer their patient to out of their hands. It makes the whole process a lot easier. Um, I think there are some pockets of highly specialized surgeons where a centralized process probably wouldn't make sense. And I think that the the anecdotes we hear of surgeons not wanting a centralized process do come from those pockets often. Uh, But when we think about the bread and butter of surgery, uh, I think that a centralized process wouldn't be argued against by surgeons um, because it also helps them increase their referrals and makes the process more streamlined for them. Uh, And so I certainly think that we shouldn't be using prior anecdotes to drive any policy changes that we make coming out of this as we think about how to fix the problem. I think they finally have, I mean, I'm, I uh, kind of know the situation in uh, certain kinds of cancer surgery, which, which was not covered by this. And I think that when you have certain specialized uh, cancer surgeons, you know, on a list, it does, it reduces wait times for sure. Yeah, I mean, any kind of centralized process would definitely have to take into account the specific subspecialty of the surgeons, what types of operations they do, and also the acuity of the cases. And right now we have wait time benchmarks for cancer surgery in the province that we're always striving to meet. But certainly you can imagine a system where we increase efficiency for all procedures, including cancer surgery. And you can imagine longer term benefits as far as uh, patient outcomes that might arise from that. So what is your prescription then to to fix this? I, I mean, also, some of it, I gather, is unconscious bias. So are you hoping it will get somewhat resolved just by pointing it out? Yeah, I mean, I think for far too long, we've relied just on educating people that biases exist. And certainly, I think there's a role for that. Um, but now we're at the point where we have ample data that shows that this exists. And it exists today, like it's 2021, and this still exists. And it's naive of us to think that this is a problem of the past. So I think the educational component has been addressed. I don't think that simply going around and telling people to watch out for their biases is going to solve the problem. That being said, I do think that there's a role for physicians auditing their own practices. Um, Now that we know that this is an issue, I think you know, it would be helpful for physicians to look at the referrals that they've been making and look at the referrals that they've been receiving and compare that with colleagues who work at the same institution to determine how their practices are being driven by biases in their own communities. The other thing that I think would be helpful beyond centralized referrals, which I think would be very beneficial, is simply a process that allows us to develop metrics. Um, Right now, wait times data uh, are... cumulative and averaged across institutions or across jurisdictions. But I think it would be helpful for referring physicians and for patients to know what the average wait time is for the for the surgeon or physician that they're being sent to. You know, right now in the province, we unfortunately have situations where two patients needing the same operation can wait for very different lengths of time. Yeah, that's um, true. Um, that's true. And uh, we're basically out of time. So thank you so much for that, Dr. Faima Dosa. Really appreciate it. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for your interest. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. People, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. That's, of course, the original, the one, the only, and the day we talk about what you want to talk about. There's always a lot to talk about, so if you couldn't get through, or if you have something else that's on your mind, please call back tomorrow. And that's all the time we have for today. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. You go to the grocery store or wherever you buy food, you assume that it's good, especially when it comes to the fresh fruits and vegetables that everyone tells us to eat more of. Well, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency has announced a recall, uh, one of several actually, on onions over fears of contamination from salmonella. Now, it's just the latest onion recall, and while the brand names of some of the problematic products have been named, how do you know? I mean, many are sold loose, or even if they come in a bag, the label gets lost pretty quickly, and uh, basically, so here's my issue. Onions go into everything you cook or prepare raw, not to mention in the food, prepared food that you may purchase. So uh, let me give the names of the brands. They are Dorsey, MVP brand, Piercy brand, and Riga Farms brand. I have to say, I've never heard of any of them. I just buy onions. And let me give you the numbers. Um, I want to hear from you on this. And, and also, like, do you worry about the food that you buy? This is There's salmonella. In the past, we've heard about listeria. Uh, sometimes you buy, I buy anyway, uh, packaged, uh, packaged greens that have already been washed. Uh, I got a reason for doing that, but sometimes, uh, you know, that affects them. So the numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Keith Warner, Professor of food science at the University of Guelph. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Libby. So, uh, again, I'm kind of concerned because even if uh, you've released the brand names, um, you know, I'm not sure that I can attach a brand name to an onion. Yeah, it's quite amazing uh, how much we use onions and how the kind of uh, which products are going. The problem they have with onions, obviously, is that they're kind of grown in these big central, I'll call it intensive farms for a better word. Uh, Then they just get sold like a commodity. They'll go through lots of different distributors. And unlike um, in packages where you can say, oh, yes, this is from X or Y, uh, onions end up at the uh, strangest of places. As you can see, this sort of outbreak we have now is affecting 35 states including puerto rico um, and we've even gone up to canada and with a shelf life like onions and the wide distribution network you can imagine uh, the onion industry is in um, a bit of a panic and i think the other sort of level on top of that is that canadian onions are safe but how do you tell a mexican onion from a uh, Canadian onion. So it affects the whole industry, even though it was centered in Mexico. Well, right. And then one of the things that I read was that even one brand that was labeled as being Canadian was actually from Mexico. Yeah, this is the other uh, part about it. And this has been a big issue in the industry for a long time, where you'll get um, ingredients from all over the world and suddenly say, well, it's from Canada. And... There have been sort of steps in the new regulations in the Modernization Act to try and clarify the uh, origins or the uh, origins of uh, the different products. But as you could imagine, the roadblock there is saying, well, if you're going to identify the origins of this product, then isn't that a trade barrier and a trade war? You're trying to say Canadian onions are safer than Mexicans, which you, maybe they are, maybe they are. Uh, but the, the reality is it's full of politics. So with onions, um, yeah, you just don't know where they end up. And it's uh, not easy, is it? Because well, isn't there uh, a rule that's saying you have to be truthful about where something comes from? Oh, yes, you have to be truthful. But there again, you don't need to actually put it on the label. So there was a good example. Was a, I won't say what the program name is or investigation, but it was illustrating how you could get Canadian products sent to Argentina for processing. And then we turn to Canada and say, yep, it's made in Canada. Uh, it's a very fuzzy kind of regulation. And the, the problem we have, um, you know, going not too much off subject, is when we get food fraud as well. And you know, saying a product is X when it's really Y. And this has led the industry to look at this sort of traceability, which we need. Uh, but you know, people argue, say, well, 
traceability is fine, but it's costly. And in an outbreak, it's like shutting a stable door after the horse has bolted. So I think what the challenging is now for the CFIA and the FDA, to mention it, is they've literally got to track down all these onions where they could have possibly gotten. You know, companies themselves, when they buy onions, they don't consciously say, right, we're going to have these Mexican onions. They just get onions at the best price, like the rest of us do. So it's a bit of a, um, a nightmare scenario all around. Okay, I want to give the numbers out again, people. So um, do you buy onions and use onions? I'm assuming that you probably do. And are you worried that uh, here we are, we've been hearing about contamination of onions for a while, but it'd be really difficult to tell if your onions are contaminated. I mean, in terms of, you know, even when they were sold, uh, you know, I buy them by the bag. Do I even remember when I bought them? Sometimes I use them fast. Sometimes it takes a while. Uh, So I'd like to hear from you. And, you know, this can apply to other food recalls as well. I really would like to know what people think. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm talking to Dr. Keith Warner, who is a professor of food science at the University of Guelph. Okay, so um, Keith, uh, what should people do? I mean, I don't know. What do I do? I'm, I'm, am I going to throw out my onions? I don't think so, but... Well, you're right. You know, it's uh, people don't think... They always say, I'll oh, throw them out, you know, and all this. And it, and it's true to a point where, if in doubt, throw it out. Because uh, the thing with salmonella, especially this uh, type of salmonella, it can be pretty devastating. There was actually uh, the first few cases, this poor chap, who uh, got paralyzed by it because it's an invasive sort of pathogen. But anyway, so the key point is, is that as a consumer, if you want to use your onions, you think, well, yes, they are from Canada, not from Mexico. And uh, you know, it's fair to say that those um, Mexican onions, I so think they were harvested in August. So even the people preserving them, you know, I think it would start going sprouting. But the general point is, is that if you cook the onions, then you're fine. You know, salmonella gets inactivated by cooking. And for now, I would recommend handling onions like you would do chicken, because we know with chick poultry and that, you, you know, salmonella is associated. So essentially, use a separate cutting board. Uh, you cook them. You wash your hands. Um, make sure you wash utensils as well to stop the transfer. And, you know, obviously, don't make guacamole with uh, for now or pesto or salsa or other onion-containing sources, because... Salmonella is very tough, and even if you think, wow, that's really high acid, you know, it can survive in high acid. It's a very robust uh, pathogen. Okay, that sounds that sounds like good advice. Uh, more work for us, but uh, that sounds like reasonable advice. I mean, you know, you talk about intensive farming. I mean, should we be um, expecting more of this kind of a thing with our food supply? So what the problem is, is that uh, before now, well, last year there was an onion recall and outbreak. Uh, this year we have. And, you know, as you rightly said at the start, all we see is recalls, uh, foodborne illness cases. There's four going on in the U.S. at the moment. And the real reason is our ability to detect outbreaks and detect pathogens have got much better whereas our sort of um, means of controlling them hasn't really changed that much. And In the U.S. and in Mexico and um, California, and it's uh, fairly free knowledge, is that their sort of philosophy is saying, well, don't worry about the environment. Anything in the processing step will take care of our problems. But what they're realizing now is that mixing animal production with crop production, highly centralized, I don't like the word intensive, but it conjures up other images. But you can see where the nightmare scenarios come from. If you've got a central... Um, producing all these onions and you know i'll give you an example away from onions but lettuce for example 80 percent of 70 uh, percent of the lettuce we buy is from california and a bit like mexico they've got animal production near crop production so you get these pathogens like salmonella like e coli 157 uh contaminating the water which contaminates the crops and they get sent to us you know you might say oh triple washing must solve it no, it doesn't. No. We know that. The best they can do in washing is uh, kind of prevent cross-contamination. And when you're in that high susceptible group, 
you know, the young, the elderly, immunocompromised. You've got to think twice almost, like, do I eat this raw and things like this? And that's the key point. Okay, let's take a call from Kathy in Niagara. Hello, Kathy. Hi. Um, I'm just calling because um, I couldn't hear you this morning when you were saying what ones. And I have one here, and it's got peer-c. I thought you said something about Percy. No, no, no. That is that is one of the brands. Uh, do you know when you bought it? No, but on the back of it, it says that they're from Leamington, Ontario. Well, they're one of the brands that were recalled, and, and the recall notice I saw, I'm going to let Keith uh, jump in on this, said uh, it's up to October 28th, which is very recent. Hmm. Yeah, Keith, so... Um, like I say, you're, you're exactly right about sell-by dates, but the worry is, isn't it, as you said, that from Leamington, but grown in Mexico, isn't unheard of, you know, because essentially they're packers. Um, I always say, to, well, I'll, I'll go over the uh, sort of advice, if in doubt, would throw it out, but if you just cook it um, and handle it correctly, like you would do a chicken, um, then it should be fine. Uh, but um, most of the onions, I suspect are already out of circulation. One would anticipate that, you know, it's, I can't underplay, like catching salmonella and or any pathogen. It's not just the initial symptoms. It's a long-term one. And I could give you some horror stories about um, power people getting paralyzed and oh. affected. But, but it's, um, mm. if you're confident that they're not from Mexico, then you should be. All right. I suspect they're not from Mexico, being around the Leamington area, because uh, we've just had our onion season, so it should be fine. Yeah, but uh, again, that brand is on the list. Mm. Yeah, well, how are you supposed to know? I don't think that's right. I think the government should be more specific at where they're, when they put a label on it, where it's from. Yeah. <laughs> Good idea. Yeah, and, like, yeah, and this comes back to this country of origin sort of um, philosophy or this policy they've got. And as I say, they've been trying to introduce it for a number of years, but they just pushed back saying... The food uh, industry you know pushes back. You know, basically mean, oh, you mean our onions are unsafe, and uh, if you're going to do that, we're going to do this. But you are correct that the... And this is uh, what the, well, the government and the company should be doing, is that they should know that they got these onions from Mexico or not. There should be no question. But this is the thing. Do the industry take the lead or do they wait for government to tell them to take the lead? Okay, Kathy, I, I, I hope that uh, helps you decide what to do with your onions. I don't know whether to pitch them or just make sure I cook them really good yeah. before I eat them, that's all. Well, it's yeah, it, that's up to you, I guess. Okay, uh, but, thank you. Uh, thanks, Kathy, for that. Uh, okay, yeah, we've got to take another break. Dr. Keith Warner, anything you'd like to leave us with? I think the only thing to leave is with uh, keep an eye on recalls and be very wary if you're immunocompromised and just follow those uh, techniques. So if you cook it well, wash uh, your hands and things like that until it's over. And be very cautious about buying things like salsa, guacamole and other sort of onion-containing products uh, for now. For a simple reason, they don't know where the onions came from and uh, just got to be cautious. Okay, uh, good advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Keith Warner. Thank you. Bye-bye. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, um, have you or a loved one had surgery lately? Uh, did you have a male surgeon or a female surgeon? There's a study that says, you know, male doctors refer to male surgeons. And, you know, that can have a downstream impact on how long you have to wait. So we are going to talk about that when we come back. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. In Flanders Field, the puppies blow. The puppies blow between the crosses. Flanders Field, the puppies That mark our place. 
Welcome to a special Remembrance Day edition of Fight Back that was part of Marilyn Lightstone's reading of In Flanders Field. And today we are very privileged to have retired Major Jim Parks, a World War II veteran who landed on Juno Beach on D-Day, and also Namita Joshi, who is Chief Program Officer at the True Patriot Love Foundation. And we also want to hear from from you, many of you have parents and grandparents who served. What are your memories? The numbers to call 416 360 0740, toll free 1 866 740 And with no further ado, I would like to welcome Jim Parks who is 97 years old and is thinking of his comrades who did not make it to such a great age. Jim, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. So, uh, first of all, um, how are you doing today? How are you feeling and and what are you thinking about? Well, I said, uh, I'm at Rexbridge in the break of present moment, the Legion, but we spent the morning at the uh, the Cenotaph, with the service, the emergency services, and they had we had a pretty good parade out there. We had a we had a, a couple of bands and the and the bagpipers, and they played uh, some good music. And, uh, and some uh, some music was uh, recognized, like Duquesne John Peel was a special one. And uh, we had a very good morning out there. Now I'm at the Luckridge Oxbridge Legion. The uh, uh, we were invited back here after the uh, after the service. And um, are you thinking about the people that you were with? You served with the Royal Winnipeg Rifles and um, D-Day. Oh yes, I've, it's actually thoughts. The thoughts come uh, uh, up fairly often, and, and particularly this week because I've been at uh, several little services, and uh, you always think of a uh, you think of the, uh, the services during the war and the, the different camps are at, and you think about the landing on D-Day and the and the various battles in Normandy. Normandy was specifically, we were ten weeks in Normandy, and that was quite a quite a set to. There was a uh, quite a battle between the uh, the Allies and the uh, the German soldiers until we broke out at uh, Calais and head up uh, head up to up, up uh, northern France into Holland and Belgium and into Germany. That and finished up in May, eighth of May in forty five, but it was quite a long long, gruesome trail going up that way. Did you um, have friends and comrades that you lost? Oh, yeah, many. It's, uh, on the beaches, and I, I remember a particular friend of mine that, uh, that I used to be uh, going to leave with the odd time, and, and I'd, I didn't... He was a different company. One of the first people I saw on the beach was, uh, was, uh, was him, and there, there's also another one called Corporal Scaife, he was from the Saskatchewan, and he was on our tug-of-war team and a big fellow. And I'll, I'll never forget him because uh, our boat, when we went in, our, our boat got disabled, got hit, and we we ended up losing our equipment, and I had to swim in. And the first play, person I saw was this person lying on the beach, and it was Corporal Skate. And he was mortally wounded, so I, t- I rolled him over, took off his small pack, and I, I picked up his Sten gun, which is... Uh, which you, you might know is a light machine gun, and uh, I, I, I carried on to the sun sand dune, and I waited for the rest of our platoon to come in because, uh, as I said, we our, our six we lost our mortar carriers and all our mortars and all our equipment, and our waited for our, our platoon to come in, and they had two more sections of uh, of mortars and our platoon commander, and, and so we were able to marry up with them, and. Uh, Stuck with them for the next uh, few days. Was, uh, after we got by the beach, it was a little quieter for a bit, super sniper, and we got to a small village called Puto, and we dug in around that area there, and that's where the uh, the first German counterattack came in on Puto. The 12th SS Hitler Youth Division, which uh, which were equipped with various different tanks and uh, and armored vehicles, and that's where we had quite a battle at that time. We managed to, we got overrun by them, but uh, the Canadian Scottish, which is our reserve battalion, they took a, a counterattack and they, 
they took back the village. And uh, meanwhile, we got scattered around because uh, we get overrun like that. You never knew you never knew who's around the next corner, your buddy or some German soldiers. So uh, we're kind of, kind of happy when the Canadian Scottish come in and we recognize some of our buddies. Yeah, kind of. I'd like yeah. to. I'd like to bring in Namita Joshi. Uh, Namita, I mean, it really is a rare privilege to hear from somebody who was actually there. I agree with you completely, Libby, and thank you for the welcome. And sir, thank you for your service. Um, as we paused earlier this morning to honor and remember veterans, I was thinking of Silver Cross Mother Jose Simard and her daughter Karine Blay, as well as the 114,000 Canadians who have died in uniform over the last 100 years, and the many more who have passed on through suicide or as a result of physical and mental health challenges arising from their time in history in service. Being able to hear stories and share the experiences of our World War II veterans is so meaningful, not only for... um, not only for families, but also for the younger generation as well. So thank you, sir, for sharing your experiences with us. Presently, Canada has 700,000 Canadian Armed Forces veterans. Many of them are also still struggling with their time after service. And without help, they may face an uncertain future that may include anxiety, depression, isolation, and post-traumatic stress. So through True Patriot Love, our hope is to be able to be able to provide that support not only to veterans, but also to their families. Yeah, um, that's a difficult thing. Jim Parks, I mean, the memory of the Second World War and the First World War is fading. Uh, One of the depressing things that I find is that when you survey young people, a large number of them have no idea what happened. They've never heard of the Holocaust. Uh, What are your thoughts about that and the importance of memory? I give a a lot of talks to different groups and and on on the memories, and I usually bring up as many names as I can because... um, Fellows that I know have lost, and uh, and one little kid about nine years old came up to me and he said, "Thank you much, sir, very much, sir. I never met a veterinarian before." (laughs) So so he was very sincere. I'll I'll never forget that, and I always mention that because it 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 just accentuates that the word got across to him. He's only nine years old, but he he remembered. And I and in being talking to these school children. In groups, I always say to them, some of you people have members in your family who served during World War II. And I ask them if they hold their hands up, and there's quite a few hold their hands up. And I also, is anybody here willing to talk about it? And always a bit of a hesitancy. So you can say anything you want. Just uh, tell them what they're like, and then if you think about what they told you about their service, say what what you can say about their service. That's what I do. Namita Joshi, um, what do you do to help perpetuate the memory of these things that for young people um, are fading from memory? True Patriot Love raises awareness within the Canadian general population. Our focus in being able to provide support, we hope to allow for every Canadian to understand the sacrifices that have been made by those who serve in the Canadian Armed Forces and our veterans. Um, We fund programs across the country that support well-being, enable rehabilitation and recovery through injury, and support children and families, military and veteran families, um, as as they live in different regions across the country. Our hope is to be able to allow Canadians to understand that even though, for example, our mission in Afghanistan may be over, that there is a continued need for support. There is important lessons to be learned and things that our veterans can share and provide leadership on within Canadian society. 
Um, I'd like to give the numbers out again. I know that a lot of our listeners have parents, grandparents who serve. They're thinking of that. Uh, My own family, my parents were Jewish refugees in Eastern Europe running away from the Nazis. So our family uh, definitely has a debt. So the numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-744-740. And again, I would like to hear from people. Did you have family members who served either way back when or more recently? Um, How are you observing the day? Uh, This is actually uh, the first time in a couple of years that we are having public observances like this. It was off last year because of the pandemic, and having these public ceremonies is very important for people. So again, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Jim Parks, how important is it for you to participate in these ceremonies? Uh, I think it's very important because uh, you are the voice of many others that uh, convey the message of uh, a remembrance. And what I mean by the remembrance is that uh, you bring forth to them that there's many people that didn't make it back, and there's many people that didn't make it back were in very good condition and maybe in veterans' hospitals, different places. And there's many widows and mothers that might be still out there who lost members in the armed forces during World War II and subsequent wars. Uh, tell me, what was it like for you when you came back? Well, first come back, it was, uh, it's kind of a, uh, I call it the year of the lost souls. That was a word I used because in Winnipeg, you didn't have any mixed drinking. You had beer parlors. And you got into the beer parlors and was filled with ex-servicemen sitting around uh, drinking beer and telling war stories. And it was a way of, uh, of ventilating. You know, you have to get, you have to ventilate and get rid of some of your, your thoughts and emotions and discuss them. So uh, sort of a uh, sort of rehabilitation when you think about it. We, we talked about each other and, and we, we talked about the hard times and the good times. We had some laughs and and uh, some good jokes, and but as a way of getting rehabilitated in that first year back, because if we didn't have that sort of thing, I think it would be. Uh, I think of the people that didn't uh, weren't living in cities; they're going back to their farms or farming countries. Uh, they uh, they were stuck with having all these thoughts within themselves, and they were. I guess they would you know, resurface sometimes at night or when they're walking or working on a farm. They resurface and think about it because that's what happens. You're you're walking along like I remember the first year back. I smelled a diesel fume from the on the buses. It reminded me the landing craft were on. It was all diesel fumes, and I used to think about the landing craft when I smelled the diesel fuel from the buses. Well, that landing must have just been so hard, and then you're freezing cold and wet, and you lost your equipment. And I had a belly full of water too. And I, when I got into the shore, and after I picked up that sending, and I got, I went up to the, the what they call attack headquarters of the brigade, and the sergeant major was a former, former uh, uh, neighborhood police, and he said, "You stick around with us and be our runner," but I just lasted about twenty minutes, and I started to get sick because I swallowed so much seawater, and I went over by the tree trunk, and I. I brought up a lot of sea water. He says, okay, Jimmy, he says, uh, no bothers. You, 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 as soon as you see your, your platoon come in, get back with them. And that's what I waited to do. Well, it was all quiet the first time. But, uh, there's only snipers after you cross the bush, and bush uh, the beach, I should say, and the uh, mortar fire, sniper fire. And then until two days later, we got the counterattack. That's when they got things got really got rougher. How was it for you to readjust? I don't know if you came back, you were already married, uh, to readjust to civilian life, to family life? No, I joined when I was 15, and the time I got back was uh, <clears throat> just about, well, I hadn't even reached 21 yet. I've been through the whole war from 1940 on, and I, 
And it was, uh, I hadn't had my 21st birthday, and I, I landed back in Winnipeg. Like you say, we, uh, we ended up going down to the Legions or down to the, uh, down to the local pubs and you sit around and talk, you know. That was the sort of thing we did. I, I didn't get back into, uh, <clears throat> into working right away because it's, uh, so we had what they call a, a bit of a leave for a while, and then the, we had we had counseling by the Veterans Affairs. I remember the, the Veterans Affairs. He was trying to get there about four of us in a row. He sat us down. He says, "We're short of members in the RCMP. Anybody interested in joining the RCMP?" We said, "What was it like?" He said, "Well, the first six months you're in a your vagina is pretty basic. You got to do a lot of signing of buttons and." Uh, and the shining of shoes and that sort of thing. And we said, we all sit up and said, no, thanks. We'll skip that part. <laughs> yeah, I, I would think so. Namita Joshi, I mean, I, I would imagine that it's a big improvement, that, that there is something more organized than just uh, you sitting around in, in, a, in a beer parlor uh, to, you know, try to adjust. It is. And I'll say that one of the most humbling things for me has been speaking with older veterans who will share, or their wives, who will share that they didn't have the same supports that are available to the younger Canadian Armed Forces veterans today. Um, you mentioned sitting sitting in the Legion, having a drink, and I think that that kind of speaks to the same component of peer support that's being considered across the country right now as playing a very valuable role in allowing veterans and their families to move forward and to be able to share their experiences with others who have had similar experiences. Just listening to stories and sharing those experiences, whether it be in person, one of the other things that we do is we have a For Her Country podcast series and also host fireside chats that allow for the sharing of those stories and hearing how different experiences, there's a commonality and that individuals should feel comfortable to come forward to seek possibly new support that didn't exist earlier, but that do exist today. Now, getting together in a pub is all fine. Having a few drinks is great. But did, does that kind of thing, you know, maybe lead for some people to too much and, and addiction issues? It can. It doesn't necessarily have to be in an environment such as a pub. Um one of the things that we're most proud of is the work that we've been able to do with our partners in the province of Ontario related to providing various mental health supports to veterans and their families. Um, and much of that support is directed towards evidence-based programming that includes group, group counseling programs that's facilitated by psychologists and veteran peer support workers together. Um, and the aim of those programs is to reduce depression, substance abuse, suicide, while also help, helping to strengthen family relationships, peer support, and self-esteem. Um, another program that we are supporting is a group-based psychoeducational and counseling program for veterans and Canadian Armed Forces members and their spouses and their partners who may also be struggling. I think that also this recognition that it is really, it is a member who serves in the Canadian Armed Forces, but they are supported by an entire family. So we need to be able to provide a holistic approach and support for mental health and well-being support for the entire family unit and the different needs of each individual. Uh, Jim Parks, did you have comrades or friends who had more difficulty than you in adjusting back both in terms of jobs, family, uh, depression, all that kind of thing. Well, when I first got back, there's a. You may not know this, but there's there's quite a few guys in the first year committed suicide. Oh dear. And I, two, and I had two friends of mine. One fellow, he was he was pretty well shot up when he was uh, banged up when he's over in Normandy. Got uh, his, his uh, vehicle blew up, and he, he he was pretty well shook up. And he come back, and he was driving for in a, a bus in Winnipeg, and one day he parked his bus, and never nobody found him until a, a couple of days later he apparently shot himself, so it just caught up with him. And he, was, he seemed to be okay up until time. We used to laugh and joke, but I guess somewhere buried in his mind there's a lot of, of conflict, you know? What do you think is different for 
people of your generation and uh, the current veterans who are coming back from places and and this this year there's a, a special emphasis on Afghanistan and I know a lot of veterans are really upset uh, because first of all the withdrawal uh, seems to have reversed the good they did and also this this whole saga about how the people who helped us uh, are, are having difficulty getting out and there's red tape and it's being hard to bring them from Afghanistan where their lives are in danger. That's, that, I've been reading about that. That's, uh, that's quite a difficult thing. You wonder, you wonder why it takes so long to, to get some program into action to do something to help these people because it's all the evidence is there already. It's a, usually they say, well, give us the evidence to show why we need to do that. It's already there. They've got it. But there's a lack of motivation and the, uh, the need to get somebody to get their butt moving, you know, to get yeah. them to do something. But how do you think it's different for, you know, veterans of Af- Afghanistan as opposed to uh, your generation? I, I think it'd be... Uh, well, our generation, we had, we got back at the, they had programs to start to try to rehabilitate people. And I don't know if there's any programs now to rehabilitate anybody. There might be not as, there might be some veterans affairs who might do it. But I don't know if it'd be extensive. I haven't any knowledge of that. But they did everything they could at the time we got back to get us uh, rehabilitated in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, Namita, do you want to weigh in on that? Mm-hmm. There are a number of programs offered by both Veterans Affairs Canada as well as many community-based organizations across the country, um, including military family resource centers, which are located on every unit, wing, or base, um, that offer a veteran family program to be able to provide support to those who are transitioning. Um there's also a new unit um, that was stood up a couple of years ago called the Canadian Armed Forces Transition Group, whose role is to help look across the entire spectrum from recruitment through release and beyond. At the foundation, part of what we strive to achieve is to have a strong understanding of all the various different supports available across the country to act as a catalyst or a collaborator to allow for coordination of those services. Um, and we work with the Canadian Institute for Military and Veteran Health Research, which is based at Queen's University, which is conducting significant research into military and veteran health. And all of that information will then further inform Canada's policy and program development in support of veterans Well, I imagine it's all difficult to navigate. And Veterans Affairs, I mean, there's a huge criticism. There aren't enough caseworkers. Veterans have to wait a very, very long time to get the help they need, often. Uh, Jim Parks, do you have a view of that? I I haven't. I've read about it, and it's hard to... I worked for Veterans Affairs after the the war. I wasn't in that that particular field. But they did everything they could at that time to. Uh, they were always seem to be short of short of people because they couldn't get the funds to get financing to get the people. And it's the Treasury Board, whoever whoever allocates the funds, they're always short of counselors they, all the time. They couldn't get enough people. And I, I remember being to. Uh, I belonged to a group they call the Cadence, which uh, which helps veterans. It helps uh, what they call first responders and so on. And that's sort of a good group, too. And uh, they have difficulty as well uh, getting funding. And they, they do similar things for emergency, you know, first responders, which is the same as uh, being veterans. You, know, you have people at the front handling all the difficulties. And it's a, it's, it's a bit of a strain on the, on the people. And they, they, need, they, need to have, they need some help in that, that regard. And Namita Joshi, are you confident that uh, these problems will get sorted out? I'm confident that there are strong, well-meaning, passionate people tackling these problems every day. Um, Through my role, I have the opportunity to speak with many individuals that focus their entire days working on these issues. And 
finding, trying to find better ways to provide support. I think that with that will and with that dedication, and it's, it's very sincere, it may be quiet. I like to share with veterans that, you know, sometimes they may not realize it, but there are Canadians across the country that think about them every single day and who commit their lives to supporting them and helping them achieve a state of well-being that we would all like them to see. And I think that 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 says something about being Canadian. That gives me hope that we will be able to achieve um, the level of support and service that we all want to see and that we'll be able to do it together because I don't think there's any one organization alone that can accomplish it. Um, I'm very humbled every day by the conversations that I have, by the people that I have the opportunity to meet, and they they drive my passion to help them even stronger, and I don't think I'm alone. Uh, Jim Parks, I'm going to give the last word to you uh, about Remembrance Day. You know, before that, I'd like to mention, locally you have a, a Tish McDonald, who is uh, instrumental is, uh, is getting the, vet, the veterans' banners put up in different cities. They're pretty apparent in, in Exbridge and several communities nearby, and uh, she's, she, she's always putting forth remembrance. She's, she's, her whole, whole, uh, whole time outside of her working time is, is putting forth uh, items of remembrance. If you, if you see banners showing up in different cities, that's her, that was her start. And she, um, she, she's got the, uh, the, 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 what you call the protocol lined up. Anybody wants to start it, she provides all the information how to get it started. If you walk through the town of Tuxbridge, there's 272 banners put up with different veterans, uh, different times of year to put up, and they show their name, rank, and if the Army, Navy, or Air Force. It's a very good project, and she started it here, and it's uh, it's spreading across Canada. And so, like you see, she has the protocol, and they need it. She provides all the information how to get it started and how to get it going. If you walk around the town of Tuxbridge, you see all these. Different veterans of uh, World War One, World War Two, and, and recent ones are sitting up on the flagpole all around town. There's over 272 around here. Okay. Thank you very much for telling us about that. Um, yeah. That is all the time we have for this segment of Fight Back. Thank you so much, Jim Parks and Namita Joshi. We really appreciate your sharing with us. You're Bye-bye. welcome. You've done well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, we are going to take a break. Uh, When we come back, have you heard about a couple of onion recalls? Well, how do you know if you have an onion that's bad, it can lead to salmonella? It's uh, something I'm worried about. I want to hear from you. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And a bit later on, we'll also be talking about a study that says... uh, Doctors, uh, male doctors especially, are more likely to refer you to a male surgeon. And, you know, that can have repercussions beyond uh, the career of female surgeons. We will be talking about that when we return. Again, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.